Josh Shapiro and I met through an event with the guys from The Collective this past summer. We'd been exchanging emails about getting together for a while, but hadn't yet met face-to-face, so it was a treat to meet him out and about as well as among some watches. Josh has a fascinating background in the educational system. He was a principal, in fact, so he wasn't exactly born into the watch industry. However, as you'll learn, he was kind of primed for it in his own way. Today, his company, Jay and Shapiro, produces some of the most beautiful watch dials on the planet, and Josh has officially set out to restore watch manufacturing here in the United States. He's a baseball fan, so talk about a big swing, and he's certainly kept his eye on the ball and has seemingly made solid contact. Here's my conversation with Josh Shapiro. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, again, Josh, I uh, really appreciate uh, the interest and participation, obviously a year, maybe year plus in the making, as as we've discussed. Um, you know, we'll just jump right into it. I, uh, I'm kind of curious, like, who was Josh Shapiro at 10 years old? Who was Josh Shapiro at 10 years old? Uh, uh, a goofy kid that like baseball and catching lizards and hang out my father's machine shop. (laughs) What was the machine shop? So my grandfather was like a jack of all trades. He, uh, he started a machine shop and the sandblasting aspect of the shop became really popular, but he had this huge yard with a ton of old machines everywhere in it. And I would just spend my summers, uh, climbing around all this old machinery junk and playing with machines and, I think that had a really big impact on me. So sandblasting in order to like clean things or strip it of paint or. Yeah. 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 So like a lot of classic cars. So I grew up seeing all sorts of really cool cars all the time coming to my dad's shop and you know, you get these guys that just bought a new car and now they want to repaint it and they bring it into the shop. We'd blast it and then they'd find all the Bondo underneath and be super <laughs> furious and right. go back to the original buyer and say, Hey, you sold me. <laughs> So, okay. So in that scenario, then you guys are just stripping it of the paint. Are, were you guys also a paint shop or did you just work closely with one? No, it was just sandblasting. Um, Interesting. And it, like all sorts of industrial applications too. Like for instance, like uh, like light poles before you powder coat them, they had to be sandblasted. There was like, you know, electrical cabinets, all sorts of things uh, need industrial sandblasting. Um yeah, so constantly having all sorts of fascinating things coming into that shop. And the shop was like on this one acre piece of property and most of it was filled up with junk, either stuff customers had abandoned or projects my grandfather had started like, oh, I need to build this machine and he'd go to the junkyard and get a whole bunch of different machines and scrap them to piece them together. Now, where was this? This is in South Almani, which is... Uh, is right by the 60 and 605 freeway. Yeah, just east of LA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandfather actually founded the city and was mayor a bunch of times. No way. That's crazy. I used to go to that Volkswagen dealership. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Jamie in service. <laughs> um, wow, that's cool. Did you have a favorite car that or type of car that would come through? Oh, yeah. I mean, like... Uh, I love the 67 Mustang Fastback. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. A few of those come through my dad's shop and then we, we bought one ourselves and we had this big restoration project. And so I got to drive that in high school. It was, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Are you serious? What color was yours? It was moss green. And that was your first car? No, I mean, it was, I got to drive it my senior year. It was my dad's car, but it was our project together. My car before that was uh, an 88 Mustang, which sounds cool, but it wasn't. It was like a super boxy white grandma car. I don't know what Mustang was thinking in the late 80s, but. uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, because when I turned 16, um, my I have a brother who's four years older than I am. Um, and he had this friend, Amanda and Amanda was trying to sell her old car so that she could get a new one. It was her senior year, I think, uh, or she may have been even graduated already, but she had like a burgundy or some shade of like off red or whatever of the, of like an 87 Mustang. It was 87 or 88, I think. And, um, couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely hideous car. Um, (laughs) I don't know but, what Ford was thinking, but, uh, <laughs> well, and then I think it was, they came out with their new design. It was much better. Well, and then between that, I want to say it was like an 89 that like the five liter had the lights that almost had like a, a grid, like a horizontal grid pattern to the lights. It was, it was a distant departure. It may have been like a, a, a half type of body style, you know, like a, I don't even know what Mustang that would have been at that point. I'm I'm not huge into Fords personally, but um, the '60s Mustangs were; those are by far my favorite of of yeah, the lot. Yeah, incredible! It was so much fun. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so what do you drive now? Since we're already talking cars, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I drive a Model S, a 2018 Model S. Uh, it gets great gas mileage. <laughs> yeah. Well. And also couldn't be further from what you do from a, like for a living <laughs> as far as technology goes. Right. Yeah. 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 Though it's a, it's an American, uh, American company, you know, American manufacturer. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. I'm just thinking technology, like that's kind of like on one end of the spectrum, whereas you're kind of like vintage vibes for the lack of a better description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mechanical watches usually you think, uh, uh, engine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I read or heard you speak about kind of your watch journey and how like the jump off point was your wedding watch. Was it not? Or yeah. Kind of along those lines. What, uh, what was the watch your wife gave you? So she got me a a nice like hundred dollar Bolivar watch, you know, like she didn't have any money, neither did I. And uh, I had a bracelet on it. So I took it into Feldmar to get the bracelet adjusted. It was my first time ever walking into a fine watch store. And uh, there was this uh, giant poster of a Chrono Swiss Opus, uh, which is a skeletonized chronograph. And I thought it was so awesome. I I fell in love right then and there. And then started collecting watches and buying and selling and then learning as much as I could, taking distance courses and you know, I started skeletonizing my own watches. Uh, oh, wow. Really dove in deep, um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What year was that? Do you mind me asking? That was uh, that was 12 years ago, uh, August 2011, we got married. So right around then. Wow. I mean, that's, 
I mean, I've been into watches since, you know, just before then, probably. I've been into it probably about 20 years. But even with me, quote unquote, being into watches for 20 years, I've never skeletonized a watch. I've never started my own brand making a watch or creating these like unbelievably gorgeous dials and such. I mean, obviously you, you have like the lineage of machine shop and kind of that tactile experience with, with metals and such. But I mean, is that what you sort of tapped into or, or was it like, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, like I grew up around a lot of old stuff and collecting old baseball cards and coins. And so that aspect of watchmaking appealed to me, like vintage watches. Like my first nice watch was a vintage Omega. Oh, wow. Uh, so I like that aspect of it. But then as a kid, I had spent a lot of time around metals, like just weird blacksmithing projects I did on my own and um, smelting projects with my grandfather. So I really, really liked metal. Um, and so the idea of skeletonizing and then eventually making my own parts or doing guilloche and now doing everything all spawns out of just the love of working with metal and different types of metal and forming metal. So it, it, watches was just like the perfect thing of history and uh, a collectible objects with, uh, uh, you know, metalworking coming together and, uh, I love it. I enjoy it a ton. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Um, so you said good research earlier. I, I I teeter on the line of good research and zero research so that I can remain a learner as well, a student, if you will. So I understood your process to be engine turning. Um, but then you just threw out the word guilloche, which is also something I'm you know familiar with at arm's length is guilloche just describes the pattern that is done by engine turning? Engine turning and guilloche are the same exact thing. Guilloche oh, is. is the French word. Engine turning is the English word. Oh, I see. Okay. I was thinking it was different techniques or something. Yeah, it gets a little confusing. Engine turning, like in the car world, means perlage <laughs> or spotting. Um, uh so like there's all these like mix uh, terminologies between like automotive gun and watchmaking, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah really... they're the same thing. Okay. Well, like how intensive is the work then as far as like doing the actual engine turn? I mean, it does not look like a lightweight machine, clearly. Uh, <laughs> it's big, heavy steel looking thing. Obviously, this is this is going to be an audio only podcast. How do you even describe what an engine turn is, or like what do you even call the machine that does it? Uh, it's called a rose engine or a straight line machine. Oh, a stra- rose okay. engine does circular guilloche, and a straight line machine does vertical guilloche. Um, so, like uh, the Fabergé eggs were made on a rose engine machine, all the beautiful engraving, and then it's enamel on top of it. And so these machines, I guess you could kind of very loosely describe them as like a very advanced uh, spirograph in a way um, where you're creating these complicated geometric patterns based off of cams on this machine. 
if anyone's listening, they should just uh, Google it up a Rose Engine machine or straight line machine. Sure. That'll give a, a good visual for these. But the machines I have, they're, you know, some of them are over 100 years old. They're antiques, but they're, we use them 100%. They're not just a, a museum piece. Um, and that's sort of like after skeletonizing, I went right into guilloche, fell in love and started making uh, dials and then started growing the company and then went on to cases and now we're making movements from scratch in our workshop too. Yeah, exactly. It's been a whole evolution. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. Um, what does maintenance on a machine look like? Is it routine? Is it common? Or is it once a year? Like, what does that look like? Uh, the machines are really robust. You know, the the last hundreds of years more. And we just lightly oil them. Okay. If anything breaks, there's no, there's no one to go to really like we have to make our own parts for them sure wow so do you work with a machine shop to do that or oh, no we've got everything we've got a complete machine shop uh we've got two million dollars of state-of-the-art machines and lathes and mills and we could create you know anything anything watch related or machine related that we need we can create like if it's something larger, like for cars, like none of our machines are large enough for parts that size, but you know, for parts under a foot, you know, we can fabricate anything. That's insane. Well, not to sound like an awkward question. How do you go from zero to owning $2 million worth of equipment? <laughs> slowly. Um, slowly. I, I was very lucky. I was, I got into watchmaking, it was a hobby, and I was already a teacher and then a high school principal. So watchmaking was like the, the, the side hustle. And so everything I made from watches, whether it was buying and selling watches or buying and selling watch machines or making dials for other people, and then eventually the Infinity Series, I just put it all back into the company just to build up more machinery, eventually get employees, you know, it, it took years before I took home anything from the watch business, but I just kept putting it all back in, all back in. Sure. Um, and just growing it step by step. It was definitely a process. So you're completely self-funded, no investment, no nothing. You're all independently owned. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty miraculous. <laughs> yeah. Congrats. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, you know, it occurred to me recently, you know, prior to, to this interview, obviously, or, or conversation, as I like to call them, that vintage Rolex, they used to use engine turn bezels, if I'm not mistaken. Did they not? You mean like those fluted bezels? Well, they're fluted now, I guess. But like even before, I feel like some of the old, the older Rolexes, um, God, I'm spacing on the one... Um, it's sort of like a date just, it's got like an aviation name. I'm sure somebody is going to be listening to this and like shouting at their radio station or radio. Like it's called the, not the aviator or navigator. I cannot remember the Thunderbird, I think is actually what it's called. Um, it was a particular Rolex, but I, I feel like those bezels used to be engine turned. And I guess now there's the fluted one. So anyway, I only brought this up because I thought you might know the difference in production. If are the fluted ones CNC, do you know, or like how did, yeah. So 
The fluted uh, bezels are, uh, I see what you're talking about. Uh, the fluted bezels are done with um, a, a diamond tool that's uh, spinning and cutting them out. Oh yeah, okay. and I see on the sole bezel. Let's see, is this engine turning? Uh, I think this was done in a similar way too. So um, to create like that mirror fluted finish is like a spinning diamond tool that cuts grooves into it. Um, and uh, that process has actually been around for a long time, but now sure. it's just automated with CNC. It's actually how they create uh, like the mirror indexes as well, like on watch faces and dials, like mm -hmm. a Grand Seiko or Rolex, you see like these beautiful mirror dials. It's done by a spinning diamond tool called a faceting tool. Sure. Like, a, like you would have facets on a diamond. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, what about hobnail for those of us who are too lazy to Google? Ah, yeah. So hobnail, um, you mean like on a, uh, like on a paddock, uh, sure. the Calatravas that have the hobnail. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way paddock does it is also using a faceting tool. Um, but that can be done traditionally engine turning. Um, like I call it the diamond pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that can go either way. That can be done on like a straight line machine in a very traditional way, or it can be done on a faceting machine. Uh, Paddock does it on their bezels using a faceting machine because it's even got a more complex angle since it's the angle of the bezel itself. Sure. Oh, that's really interesting. All right. This might be a stupid question, but like when making one of your dials and you're using a straight line machine, do you do the pattern in like a substrate, if you will, and then cut the circle to create the uh, the dial itself? Or do you pre-cut the circle for the dial and then do the pattern on top of the circle? Oh, that's an excellent question. That's a really, really good question. No one's ever asked me that before. That's a big <laughs> part of the manufacturing process. Uh, we do both, actually. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and some aspects of it, we engine turn and then we trim the dial. On other ones, we um, we have like an insert where we insert the piece of guilloche. Mm. On the resurgence, our, um, our new watch where we have like this layered dial, um, we're doing both where we uh, engine turn and then trim the piece to perfectly align within the dial. Um, and that's sort of how we create this like step terrace guilloche that aligns perfectly. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Well, okay. So then when you're creating your patterns, like, uh, your infinity series, for example, like all I see is graph paper being in the mix. Like, do you use graph paper or like, like, do you use any tools or aids to help you? Or is it just straight out of your brain? Uh, so it's a lot of math. Like very simple, like rise over run, slope intercept math. Like it's like ninth grade math uh, is a lot of guilloche. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So like uh, like the the diamond pattern is two zigzags that come together and make diamonds, um, and then the basket weave is dividing that diamond into sections, and then the infinity weave is a lot trickier because you use two different size pattern bars to create a tiny basket weave within a basket weave. Right. Actually, um, it's, it's really hard to, 
talk about that, but I did a lecture at the Horological Society in New York sure. in 2018. And in that, um, I show some videos of how I do the basket weave and how I do the infinity weave. It's impossible to just explain to someone. They'll, they'll fall asleep faster than the high school kids did in my class. Right. <laughs> okay, so you taught math. No, I taught history. Oh, okay. I taught history. I taught English. I taught, taught STEM. I taught PE. Once I became a principal, I kind of filled in and taught whatever class I couldn't find a teacher for. Do you feel like that makes a good principal having that kind of wide breadth of experience or? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It makes a good principal. A, a good principal is someone that's, I thought I was patient, uh, but a, a good <laughs> principal is, is much more patient than even I am. Uh, I mean, you're making watches now, so I guess there's something to be said for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's people that are even more patient than that. Like, uh, it's it's got to be one of the most rewarding and difficult jobs on the planet being a high school principal. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, obviously teachers deserve all the respect in the world. I mean, the good ones anyway. Um, yeah. The um, yeah, it's interesting going back to sort of your process and actually creating these things. Are you wearing any sort of magnification or like a loop or anything? Or are you doing this all? No, Maybe. so when when I'm on the engine turning machines, I'm typically working at like 20x uh, magnification under a microscope. Oh, wow, 20x! Wow, that's cool. So, yeah, like the infinity weave is so microscopic; like uh, you need a visual aid. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine. Um, so, when you're doing 20x, though, is that projected like on a screen, or is it just like quite literally yeah, like I'm a microscope pieces? Oh, wow. Like where, where do you even source one of these machines? Obviously, like you said, it's like a hundred years old. So like, where did your machine come from? Yeah. So my machines have come from all over the place. Like uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of networking and knowing the right people <laughs> and catching people when they're like retiring out of the business or passing or passed away. It's like, you really got to keep your, your close to the ground. I assume it's similar, like in the vintage car world, you know, you've got people that have crazy vintage car collections and, you know, either they let one go or they pass away and there's a sale or an event. And that's how it kind of goes with these extremely, extremely rare machines. Um, and they come from all over the world. And I found them anywhere from just people I've networked with in the United States to like looking at classified listings in Europe uh in the middle of the night when i can't sleep and are <laughs> looking for these machines so it's it's been a crazy journey to acquire them all i have i have eight different engine turning machines uh four straight lines and four rose engines now is it a situation where like you're using one and the other three serve as backup in case something goes wrong or is that because you now have employees and all eight of you are using the machines at once. It can be that, that multiple people are on them at once, but it's also uh, for different setups. Mm. Um, so I could have one machine that's set up to do one pattern and another machine that's set up to do another pattern. Cause right. it can take a long time to set up the machine and uh, that's just wasted time. Sure. Also the machines frankly are, are great investments too. Like when you have something rare like that, it only goes up in value. So it's a tax write-off and it's an investment and I can use it to help my company grow and, and they look super cool. So, yeah, yeah. I can't argue 
can't argue at all with that. Uh, it sounds like a very wise purchase. <laughs> yeah. So I know that you're looking to kind of make everything in house aside from hair springs, right? Yeah, though we're looking to do that too. Oh, cool. Close on that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on this resurgence, we made everything except for the jewels um, and the mainspring and the hairspring uh, and the crystal and strap and things like that. But all the, like the, the case. Yeah, every single component of the case, the dial, the hands, and everything inside of the movement, which is the really big deal. I know hair springs, because I know Cameron Weiss a little bit too, um, and I know he'll make parts for other brands and companies as well. I'm sure once you're fully up and running and doing this like as a major part of your business, you'd be doing the same. What is it about hair springs that is kind of like the last thing to go in house. Is it just because the accuracy has to be just like next level or like what, what gets in the way of making that like the, the first foray, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, the jewels and springs, uh, are very left field from everything else that's made in a watch, like machining Sapphire. Uh, there's some similarities, but, it's very, very different. And then springs is very, very different from anything else you're doing in watchmaking. So um, hair springs, we actually, um, and I shared my supplier with this, I got hairspring wire uh, formed in the United States. And then we're actually going to experiment doing the coiling ourselves and the heat treating. Um, and the springs we already have are just flat. So we're already doing the Breguet overcoil and vibrating them. So even though we're getting springs from switzerland we're still doing a big part of the the process with them while we're experimenting to see if we can do like make a completely u.s made hairspring the one i'm not interested in touching is mainsprings mainsprings uh, are even more challenging than hairsprings um and there's companies that are completely dedicated to that plus mm -hmm. uh the ftc uh the federal trade commission that kind of monitors u.s made and they have like a super high barometer. Hair, uh, main springs kind of qualify as like a battery because it's consumable. It's something you replace always with the watch. Interesting. Or at least that's how I view it. Mm -hmm. That's the one I have the least interest in. And I think that's the one that you'll, you'll like a watchmaker can make jewels. It's very challenging. And hair springs, if you can get the wire formed, you know, can be done like Moser does it. Uh, but mainsprings, that's like, that's like so specialized and it's such an inexpensive component that people usually outsource that. Sure. And most companies outsource everything in the watch anyway. Like right. in Switzerland, it's normal. Like everything is a subcontractor. Everything's uh, sourced out. That's just how they do things there. In-house really means proprietary in Switzerland, like manufacturer, in-house, all these things. Very rarely are they actually doing everything in their own workshop. It just means it's a proprietary movement to them. So it's how it's put together basically is. Yeah. It's more like, you know, you have like a, a watchmaking company that hires out a firm to design them a watch and then they go to various different suppliers to bring it all together. And then maybe that, that watchmaking company does the final assembly in their own workshop, or maybe they do some of the finishing in their own workshop. Um, but that's sort of like standard 
uh, for most independents, most uh, Swiss watch companies. And that's fine. That's a great business model. It's just, I wanted to, I wanted to go the extra mile and do it like Roger Smith does it and Kari Butelainen does it where they do everything themselves. That was always my personal grail to do everything uh, myself in my own workshop. It's part of our mission statement. It's very important to us. Roger Smith, um, interesting you should bring him up because he's famously said that he can't afford his own watches and he also daily wears an Explorer 1. So what what's your daily watch? Do you wear one of your own? I mean, I have this prototype, which is the surgeon. So, how convenient! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get to wear that when I want to, but it, it doesn't feel like it's mine because I need to show it for the company and make sales off of it, and it's not something I can just wear and enjoy myself. Um, but I mean, like, uh, you know, I have a, I have like a small vintage collection and some Grand Seikos uh, that I enjoy wearing. Most of the time I actually uh, go without wearing a watch just simply because if I'm wearing a watch now, I'm really thinking about watches all the time. Even right. when I go home, like I like to not wear a watch because otherwise I'll start looking at the watch and thinking about design ideas or, or the, you know, my mind just goes wild every time I see a watch. So I actually, but my son, my three-year-old boy, I have four kids. My three-year-old boy wears a, a Casio, like nonstop, night and day. He never takes it off, ever. Oh, that's great. Because he knows daddy makes watches and he likes wearing his watch. So, Wow. That's kind of cool. <laughs> that's got to make you hold your head high. Yeah, yeah, it's very cute. <laughs> that's really great. Yeah, I know what you mean about like wearing the product as well and how it 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 serves uh, pseudo like a billboard, if you will. Like with, with mine, it's a little different. Um, which, well, I guess it's similar for your, you probably try to mitigate the number of scratches that come on your, your prototypes, but like, to my point, like, so what I started to say was like, I have to take care of these things. Like if I spill spaghetti sauce or something like on, on a jacket, that's a prototype, like, I, you know what I mean? So I, I definitely understand what you're saying, which is, which is funny because as a result, I'm usually wearing the rejects <laughs> or, or like something that's not going to be produced or like something that's just like, okay, well, this is the terrible one, which is counterintuitive. You'd think I'd be wearing the nicest of the nice to advertise, but it's like, no, I, I got to have to sell those, you know, like, yeah, right. I have to, I have to preserve them and, and keep them nice. Um, that's, that's what is it? Funny. Don't taste the product. Right, right, right you know, your own supply as, as you might say. Um, so when you first like sort of delved into the idea of making your own movements, were you hiring other people to create those parts or have you always been the one behind the scenes to do everything yourself, including the finishing? No, no. So I have a whole team, so we work on it together. Um, like, uh, I have two guys that are incredible finishers. Arthur Akme, if he has his own brand, like he works for me 75% of the time, 25% works on his own brand, but he's incredible hand engraver, incredible finisher. And Spencer, um, when he was in watchmaking school, all he did, you know, all he did, but like his favorite thing to do was like inward angles and unglage and beveling. And cool. so those two guys do incredible finishing and then, um, you know, I did a lot of the the design work. Michael Rose, one of our watchmakers, he designed one of the the movements and has done a lot of the, the work on the internals of the components. We hired um, Matthew Kluger, who is a, a French 
uh, watch technician and he kind of checked the math on everything that we did and gave us some hints and tips. Um, but, uh, you know, like all the design work, all the center distances, everything like, you know, we do ourselves. Um, so when designing the movements, is that your conception or is, is it a nod to, to, you know, who provides inspiration for that kind of thing? Yeah. So the resurgence has three different movement variations and, um, one, I kind of took inspiration from this old Swiss uh, pocket watch company that went out of business in the 1920s. It's got this very curvy design to it, and I kind of made that my own. Um, and then the second design was like a very traditional design with uh, finger bridges. Um, so I kind of designed that my own way. And then the third one was Michael's design, which is this very cubist square design with a ton of inward angles in it. Um so I like playing with different designs, like uh, bridges and plates uh, are relatively simple compared to making all the, the guts of the watch, the pinions, the wheels, balance components. All these things are very challenging, but they're interchangeable between the three movement designs. So once we we're already making all those internal components, I decided let's explore all these different movement variations and have fun with it. Do you gain inspiration or get inspiration from more traditional art as well? Like, are, are you going to art museums, looking at paintings? Like, are you into that kind of thing? Or is there any sort of movement that's like, you seem like you'd be a Bauhaus fan. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, no uh, art inspirations. Interesting. I'm looking at cars a lot more for inspirations for like the next models. Like I've really taken a deep dive into car design in the car world and cool. really looking at sports cars in a way I've never looked at them before. Um, in terms of watches though, what I've come out so far just inspired by, you know, Lapine and Abraham Louis Breguet and George Daniels and Roger Smith. I've always liked that traditional and I've kind of taken it and uh, transformed it into my, my own vision. How do you think like the automotive inspiration will present itself more on the dial side or the movement side? Uh, I, I think on the case side. Okay. I think on the case side, like, uh, you know, like body design language in cars is, has a lot of curves and surfaces to it and a lot yeah. of organic shapes and like really invoke speed. Um, and, uh, uh, kind of transferring that to an object like a watch is both challenging, but also kind of fun and exciting. You're no stranger to, um, I don't know, a five figure price tag, maybe even six, I guess, uh, for your pieces. Do you ever foresee making a watch that's perhaps more affordable? But to, to the masses, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously affordability is a subjective thing, but. Right. Yeah. No, I'd really like to. And I, I think the, the long-term plan is to first build the infrastructure doing these expensive watches. Sure. You know, once I've gotten all the machinery, all the equipment, everything I need um, to do expensive watches in the hundreds, um, that'll set me up well to. Uh, be able to do, uh, you know, watches in the 10000 or $5,000 range a little bit easier. Sure. 
if it makes sense we'll have to see but it's 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 definitely something i'd like to get to but cool um because i don't want to just uh buy a movement or harvest a, a movement a lot of people harvest movements from other watches uh, but if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it uh from scratch and do it here could you be only i because this happens in my industry meaning apparel all the time where like i might come up with a great design make it here and then once it's kind of like a, a proof of concept then i'll outsource not me personally but brands in general then you can outsource it to asia or wherever to do it on the cheap um i have zero interest in doing that but I would think for something mechanical, it's probably a little, I don't know, not taboo is not the right word, but do you know what I mean? Like, a, a, like the, the, um, the anguish it would provide, uh, for fans might be less, um, uh, I, I guess mitigated is the best word to say that for, for someone like yourself. So, so you could still design the movement, but then just have it made elsewhere to spec for cheaper couldn't you or is that not really something that's a thing no i mean that's what's done all the time like that's 99 percent of the industry either going to asia or going to switzerland um or sometimes it's one and the same um uh but that's not what i want to do sure i want to uh i want to do everything here and as much as i possibly can in my workshop i can control the quality um that's a really important point of the mission statement. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really, I really want to restore American watchmaking. And uh, the best way I can do that is by doing things here. Like if I start outsourcing things to other countries that I'm building up there, watch infrastructure. And I'd really like to build up the infrastructure again in the United States here. Whether yeah. that means me supplying to other people, which is already happening, or, uh, uh, doing what we're doing with our watches and inspiring other people to do it from scratch. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. No argument here as somebody who's doing that with apparel. So, <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. Even if I've got all the equipment in place, um, to make a $10,000 or $5,000 American made watch in my workshop, even if I've got all the equipment for that, which I'm close to now, there's doing it at scale. Right. Right. Which means getting more and more of the same machinery and then all the employees, highly skilled labor for all of that mm -hmm. um, and doing that at a price point that can make sense. So that's, that's not an overnight process. Even if I wanted to right now, someone gives me a hundred million dollars and says, Josh, I want you to make 30,000 watches made completely in the United States right now. Um, I couldn't even find enough skilled labor to, right. to pull that off. Like if I hired every watchmaker in the country, um, then maybe I'd be able to do it. Um, but like watchmaking schools are, you know, only turning out maybe like an average of 10 students a class and uh, more and more of the schools are shifting to just turn them into service robots. Um, like they're taking away more and more of the actual watchmaking in the curriculum. And it's more and more just about how do we churn out and service Swiss watches as quickly as possible. Yeah. What is, what is your production annually currently? Ours is very small. We're going to be doing about 36 watches a year. Okay, cool. That's awesome, man. I, um, di so did you go to watchmaking school at all? So I did a, a distance learning course with the British Horological Institute. I took their first year course, which gave me a lot of basics. 
sure. let me know that I don't want to go in the service. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I kind of like immediately went into the machining and guilloche side of things, like yeah. right after I finished uh, doing that distance learning course. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where my focus has been ever since is building up this company and, you know, growing my own personal skills and growing my team skills because a, a lot of what we're learning is knowledge that's only in Switzerland and you have to rediscover a lot and figure out a lot or talk with a few people in the country here that know what they're doing and learn from them. Have you always been a self-starter like this or like, did you get encouragement from your dad or like, cause I mean, I would imagine starting a watch business from scratch doesn't, you know, solicit a lot of people to come knocking down your door, telling you how wonderful of an idea this is. Right. So like, and I mean, it's the same in apparel. Like, I mean, it's a saturated market to say the least for myself. So I had a ton of people in my life telling me like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Like, don't, do this did you hear any of that or how have you dealt with that um i think since i did it so step by step and it was like my side hustle yeah so like if the company failed um it was still just like a hobby so like i was kind of lucky in that way like uh um i didn't have a lot of like free time but like uh i didn't have the pressure from watchmaking at the beginning, like I didn't quit my job and go all in into right. watchmaking. I did it kind of step by step. So when I finally did quit my principal job, um, the, the watchmaking side of things was completely established. Yeah. I think if I had, like, people would have thought I was absolutely crazy, you know, like a young family and like quit like a stable job to just go for it. Um, that would have been a little crazy, but, uh, I had tutoring companies before this too. So I had, I'd started my own businesses a few times. Like I had a tutoring center and then I had like a one-on-one -on -one tutoring company. Um, and they, they did okay. Um, they weren't like a big deal or anything, but kind of got my feet wet in the, the business world. Sure. And then running a school was like uh, gravity training. Like it was running a school is the hardest business on, on the planet. Like uh, running any company and compared to doing a, a school is, is <laughs> a breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Running oh, a school, crazy. you're dealing with, you know, teenagers, their parents and teachers that have to deal with their parents and teenagers yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of opinions, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Well, how do you, how do you decide kind of like when you want to collab with somebody and, and collaborate on a product versus, you know, taking away from your own production? Like I'm like, I'm pretty familiar with, like you've done some work with the collective, you know, you've done some dial work with Hobring with Messina lab. Like how, how do you, or is that just help, you know, paying the bills kind of thing? No, it's not, it's not paying the bills. Cause I say no to a lot of stuff. Like, uh, I want to work with people I like. I want to work with people that understand what it is to be an independent. Like I'm not like a massive company that like, okay, it's time to make engine turn dials. Like I'll have 50 at your door tomorrow. Like, right. you know, it's a, it's a tremendous process and there's going to be all sorts of unexpected things and, um, 
So I am very careful with who I work with. In general, uh, I'm finding that um, uh, like people that are not Swiss-based enjoy working with someone that's not Swiss-based because in Switzerland, like there's a high kind of barrier, like the, the Swiss communicate in a certain way and um, are more wary of people not in Switzerland. So it can be difficult to, as an outsider, to work with them. Um, and also their, like the way they, they, just the way they reply in emails or like suppliers, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's like a, you have to kind of understand and navigate it helps like, tremendously if you can speak French. Um, so people don't have to deal with that when they uh, work with me. Um, so that's kind of nice. Um, and then I also can choose like projects that excite me that I'm interested in that are a challenge that are interesting too. Um, and also it's, it's not cheap. Right. So like sometimes I'll have people come up to me and like, like you know, want to do a project and, you know, I have to let them know that like, it's really, really expensive to do prototyping. Um, yeah. This is what it's going to cost. And almost all the time people like run away screaming. Yeah. But people that are already in the business, like they get it, they know. They, they don't run away screaming. They understand why the costs are so high. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the same over here. Well, I, it's crazy how much overlap you and I have an experience with, with such different products. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, like any, any product-based company, I think is going to have a lot of, a lot of similarities. Yeah. Just like the nature of the beast. <laughs> Do you have any sort of grail, if you will, collaborations in mind? Like who, who would you, yeah. Like who would you want to work with that you haven't already, I guess is a better question. Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be cool. I mean, it'd be cool to work with a, a like a super hyper car maker. Like that would be really fun. Oh, so like non watch related even. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean like, uh, uh, Within the watch world, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. If no one's ever asked me that, I'd have to think about that before. But I thought a lot about the car world. <laughs> I think that would be really fun to do a collaboration. Are you familiar with uh, Black Badger? Yeah. James? Do you know James? Uh, I think I've been introduced to him. I, I can't remember. Maybe not, actually. I can, uh, I can put you two together because... Um... He's pretty tight with McLaren and a couple of others. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're a McLaren fan or not, but I'm just thinking what connections there might be with this podcast and supercars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does super cool stuff though. Yeah. Cool stuff. When you're not working, I mean, obviously you've got three kids, so I'm sure you're very busy, but like, what are some of your hobbies? Like, what do you enjoy doing outside of this? Uh, so I used to rock climb all the time. Oh, cool. But I'm old. I'm, I'm old and, and breakable now. Uh, the, the finger tendons aren't as strong as they used to be. It's the wrists that are giving out. Cause I, it's both engine turning and rock climbing are not complementary to each other. Mm. We've got a sim racer now at the, at the workshop. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. What's your favorite track? Uh, Red Bull Ring. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
assuming you get to choose your car, is there a common car that you like to race around Red Bull Ring? Oh, uh, well, we've been playing a lot of Gran Turismo okay. at the office, and they like have like these online time trials. Uh, so they like give you a car, and you compete against everyone else in the world, and it's like who can get the best lap time. Wow. Um, so you're going against like 200,000 other people. <laughs> like in a car that they've specified, which is cool because it knocks out like a huge variable. Everyone is using the same car. Sure. So it's just straight up who can get the, the best time on the track. Um, That's what they say in F1 too, amongst the teams, but you know, <laughs> j- jury's out. <laughs> yeah. Reality is a lot different than a, <laughs> a, a sim racer, you know, like in grand, like in a sim racer, it really is like the identical car like uh in f1 yeah. you never know like uh right. like a million real world variables do you have a grail car do i have a grail car uh i really like it's it's a grail but attainable car it is the ferrari 458 uh is was it ferrari's uh first reliable car <laughs> yeah <laughs> v8 uh you know, they're anywhere from like two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. So, can't afford it yet. But uh, I don't know. I feel like a four five eight's got to be coming down though. No. Nah, it's going up because it's the last naturally aspirated mid-engine V eight. So, uh, like everything is either turbo or like hybrid. Right. 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 So like, that's a special car. So, the prices really aren't coming down. They're going up for a while, and now they're just uh, maintaining. I guess I forgot the 488 was the, a turbo. Yeah, 488 was a turbo, yeah. Yeah, interesting. What was the first CD you ever bought? The first CD I ever bought. That's a, With your own money? With my own money? It was uh, two CDs. Bought them at the same day. It was Bush Razor Blade Suitcase and... Uh, 1996 and the soundtrack to Beavis and Butthead do America. Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) Those are my first two CDs. I listened to them a million times. (laughs) That's unbelievable. I don't know that I've ever, I didn't, well, likewise, I'm I'm probably got you here, but I, I didn't realize Beavis and Butthead. I don't think I ever had that soundtrack. Who's on that? Uh, I think it was it was Rob Zombie before he was Rob Zombie. It was it was like a white zombie uh, song. That's one I remember really well. Like more human than human. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I think that was a Rob song. Actually, I don't think that was a white zombie song. I can't remember. I mean, I can pull it up in a second. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to no, go with straight like, memory. Yeah, it was like a it was an awesome song, but um. And then the other song on that album was uh, Roller Coaster of Love by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. Uh, that was like a, a remix they did of like a 70s song. That was an awesome song. Yeah. That's the only two songs I remember from that album. Those are my two favorite ones. Do you uh, do you go to concerts? I've been to a concert in forever. When I was, I was in high school, you. Summer Sanitarium, Korn, Metallica. Like uh, I was big into hard rock then. Sure. Yeah, Offspring. That was, that was fun. Been a long time since I've been to a concert, though. <laughs> so you were a uh, a K Rock guy growing up. Yeah, yeah, I was a K Rock guy growing up for sure. 
Oh, that's cool. What was the, uh, what's the last thing you've done for the very first time? Last thing I've done for the very first time. It could be the sim racing thing. Like, uh, I had, I've never, like we bought like a steering wheel pedal set the whole thing. And I had, I never paddle shifted, uh, before. Um, so that was the first time doing it on the sim racer for that. I just used the controller and I've always driven like automatic cars. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Well, dude, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Um, is there anything else you wanted to promote or share or how people can find you all that good stuff? Yeah, we're on Instagram, Jane Shapiro watches, same name for our website and, uh, yeah, just keep an eye out. We'll be coming out with a lot of really incredible things over the next few years. Awesome. So, okay. So that's a good question is like, what's your lead time? So you're, you're already like years ahead as far as like conceptualizing and stuff. You're designing things for like 2025 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I think all brands kind of do that. Like what's my, my schedule of release is going to be, but, uh, sure. Surgeons is sold out for the next two years. Uh, so we'll be working on those for a while and trying to get going on the next watches. So you're capping that at what's that production? I'm not going to cap it, but we're limited to about three a month. So 36 a year. Um, so I'm not artificially uh, capping it. We're just limited by what we can produce. I see. But I want to keep increasing that, growing that. Awesome. Good deal, man. Well, I'd love to come by the shop, perhaps, you know, on one of my next trips up to L.A. Obviously, I'm down here in San Diego, so I'm, but I'm up there for production and stuff all the time. So would love to, to come check it out. It sounds obviously fascinating. I've seen photos and stuff and... Yeah, you know, we that, got a beautiful 7,300-square-foot workshop now in Torrance. Welcome to come anytime. Unbelievable, man. Well, congrats on all the success. And again, thanks for taking the time. It really means a lot. And um, yeah, hope to see you soon. All right. That's really fun. Okay, buddy. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.